Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would enable us now to focus on your word, to trust you that everything that would distract us from the logistics of this service to how things are going to be handled when the service is over, what we're going to do later today and what our life's going to look like this week. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to push all that aside and fix our eyes on your word and hear from you. Lord, we ask that you would pierce our hearts and that you would convict us of the ways that we pretend, the ways that we fail to even try to do what Paul teaches here. Lord, stir up in us a renewed commitment to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ-likeness. And Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, I pray that they would see this set of instructions that you've given, instructions that are rooted in your character and that accord with your gospel. And I pray, Lord, that they would see the majesty and the beauty of your teaching. And they would realize that the, the things that guide the way they live, these are unmoored and temporary and they change so often. And Lord, we pray that you would cause us to rejoice in knowing you. We pray that you would save sinners and that you would strengthen your people. And we pray, Lord, that the name of Jesus would be known here because of the way that we love one another. We commit all these requests to you in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open scriptures this morning. Hopefully you have a copy of the Bible or some way to access it. And I would invite you to open to Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 9 through 21. Romans 12, 9 through 21. And as you turn there, I want to read to you some from an ancient um, Christian writing called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. This guy Polycarp was a pastor in Smyrna, which is modern-day Turkey, and the Roman Empire had initiated a persecution against Christians, and um, the penalty for confessing Christ was death, because according to their way of looking at things, if you worshipped the God of the Bible, you didn't worship their gods. You didn't worship Zeus and uh, Ulysses and all the, all the rest, and... Um, not Ulysses. What's the Roman name for Zeus? Come on, help me. Jupiter. You didn't worship Jupiter, not Ulysses. Sorry, wrong name. Um, you didn't worship the Greco-Roman pantheon, and um, um, so they called the Christians atheists because they didn't believe in the Greco-Roman gods. They called them atheists, and so they actually, they haul, they finally track Polycarp down, and they haul him in, and they urge him to repent of his atheism. That's what they want him to do. But repenting of his refusal to worship these false gods, he sees this as a repentance from better, that is worshiping the true and living God, to worse. And he says that's impossible. 
And on this occasion, when they urged him to, this is what they say, swear the oath. And I will, the, 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 the governor said, swear the oath and I will re- release you. Revile Christ. And Polycarp makes this famous statement. He says, for 80 and six years have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And so Polycarp refused to deny Christ, and they burned him at the stake. That kind of faithfulness is what Paul is calling for here in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. And as we look at this passage, you know, it, I don't know if you, I hope you, I hope you do something like this. Our, our family, what we do in the lead up to the Sunday when a passage like this is going to be preached, um, on the nights when we can have family devotions, which... Uh, we don't, we, we're not able to do it every night, but on the nights when we can do it, we try to read the passage that we're going to, to have preached that Sunday here at Kenwood. And so this week, we've been reading this passage. And I, I hope you've been doing something like that. If you haven't, I would encourage you to do that. Um, next week, we'll, Lord willing, be in Romans 13, 1 through 7. So, you know, there's your family devotion assignment for the week. You can read that together and go over it and be thinking about uh, what, what um, uh, the Lord is teaching us here. And if you, if you, whether you've done that or not, if you're familiar with this passage, you, you know that in English translations, it reads like a string of commands, just one command after another. But actually, there are sort of overarching commands in, in the way that it's presented in the Greek text. There are, there are governing commands, and then the other statements are worded in such a way that you know that actually these other statements are telling you how to carry out this, this sort of umbrella command. So the first umbrella command is in verse 9. Let love be genuine. That's your first statement. And then everything, in, everything else in verses 9 through 13 is really telling you how to do that, how to, how to pursue genuine love. And then your next command is in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then everything else that follows that is going to tell you how to do that. And then the topic shifts again in verse 17 where Paul says, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So those are our three sections of this passage. We're going to have love without hypocrisy in verses 9 through 13, and then responding to persecution in verses 14 through 16, and then I think the big idea in verses 17 through 21 is to leave room for God's wrath. And so that's what we're going to, that's what we're going to look at in that, in that section. As we come at this... Paul is instructing the church, he's continuing to instruct, instruct the churches in Rome on what it looks like to, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, present their bodies as a living sacrifice, which is interesting in light of Polycarp, isn't it? Polycarp was burned at the stake. And, and as we continue through this passage, I'll, I'm going to allude to several other things that this document, the martyrdom of Polycarp, tells us about how he died. He really consciously went to his death in imitation of the Lord Jesus. So he wasn't a sacrifice in the sense of an atoning sacrifice, but in, in the sense that Paul is describing here in Romans 12, 1, he really did offer himself up as a sacrifice. But Paul is saying this is how you need to live in general. You, you need to live as a living sacrifice, not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And then we saw last week how he he describes in verses 3 through 8 how we, how we live this out, uh, 
offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, having our minds renewed, and we continue to get that here in verse 9. So look with me at verse 9 where Paul says, let love be genuine. Uh, The word that's rendered genuine here is the word from which we get our word um, unhypocritical. That's really, that, that would be another way to render this. Let love be without hypocrisy or let love be unhypocritical. In other words, it's not fake. It's not false. You're not acting like you're loving. You're actually loving. Let love be genuine. Really love. That's what Paul is saying. And, and it's interesting, in this document, the martyrdom of Polycarp, at the, at the beginning of it, there's an account of a guy whose love was not genuine. His love was hypocritical, fake. And what he did, this guy, was he forced himself and others to report themselves to the governing authority. And then the, the, the proconsul tried to persuade them to swear the oath, to deny Christ, and they, they wouldn't do it. But then this guy, who had done this, he, he turned coward. And he did swear the oath. And he did deny Christ. And, and so in this document, they say, we don't, we don't encourage people to give themselves over. You don't go looking to be persecuted. You don't go provoking the government to persecute you. If the government comes and finds you, you profess Christ. But you don't go provoke, the, you don't poke the government in the eye and say, don't you want to put me to death? The guy that did that, he wound up not being a genuine, a genuine follower of Jesus. And, and, and there's a contrast there between this fellow and Polycarp, whose love was genuine. Genuine love results in faithfulness to Jesus. Genuine love results also in the kind of life that Paul goes on to describe here in verses, the rest of verse 9 through verse 13. Look at what he says next. He says, abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. What does it look like to abhor what is evil? Well, um, and, and in our front yard, uh, in this one little flower bed, it's not not really a flower bed. There's some plants there. This past, um, this, over the past month or so, we have discovered that we had a nest of yellow jackets under one of these plants. And um, they first uh, stung Evie, and I was ticked. I was mad, but I didn't know where they were. I couldn't find them. But I was abhorring the evil. I was abhorring those criminal yellow jackets. And then they stung Isaiah, and now I'm even more mad. And then they stung me, and then I was really mad, and then they stung me again. And I mean, they stung me on the eye, right here above my eye, and my eye was all swollen. They stung me on the back of the head, on the side of the head. I was in, I was in so much pain that I called Bright Pest Control because we had to deal with these guys. And, and the guy that came out was actually a Christian, and sometimes Christians, they adopt the, um, the things that are stated in this passage to a fault. Like, for instance, Paul's going to say there in verse 14, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not, do not curse. Well, this guy, he's, he's got these cans of, of this bug spray that's going to kill these yellow jackets, which I want those things dead, you know, because they've harmed my family, they've harmed me, and um, I'm abhorring the evil. Well, he goes up there, and he, and he stops, and he looks at me, and he goes, you know, I almost feel bad about this. I'm like, kill them. Don't feel bad about it. They need to die. And... Um, and so I'm abhorring 
the evil, abhorring the evil. You know, I think sometimes the evil that tempts us is a little bit like, like sugar. The, if you read very much on sugar, you'll read that it's almost like poison to our bodies. And sometimes that's the way we think about sin, isn't it? We think, oh, I'll just sip some of this poison. I'll just have a little bit of this. I'll just indulge a little bit of this. I, wanna, I, wanna, I like the taste of this. And meanwhile, whatever it is, it's killing us. We have to abhor what is evil. If it's sinful, if it's contrary to God's instructions, if it's forbidden, it's evil. And, and I would urge you right now to renew in your heart a desire to abhor it. If you're harboring something, if you're thinking to yourself, I know what he's talking about in my life, and I know how I've made provision for my flesh, I've, I've, I've made preparation for, for me to go back to that and indulge it some more later, cut that off right now. By the power of the Holy Spirit, by faith in Christ, don't feel bad about killing those yellow jackets. They hate you. They want to destroy you. Satan means to own you. He doesn't want you to have just a little bit of taste of sugar and then it's harmless. He wants to dominate your life with this. He wants to ruin your life with it. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, for us, what God says is good is good. And what God says is bad is bad. That's our standard. And we find that these instructions... They, they correspond to the character of who God is. So that God's instructions, his commandments, his prohibitions, they align with who he is in his person. They're not shifting. As I began to study this passage, I, I read this article. Maybe you, uh, you saw this article that uh, Denny had tweeted out. It was on uh, the situation at Yale College or Yale University. And, and at Yale, they're, they're not rooted to the living character of God. They're not rooted to the scriptures. And, and so the article describes this situation where the, the ground is constantly changing. And you don't know what virtuous behavior looks like because virtue keeps moving. And you don't know whether you're saying the right thing or the wrong thing because they keep shifting the goalposts on you. And in contrast to that, the Bible is so good, isn't it? It's so clear. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. God is our Father. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we need to pursue brotherly affection in one another. And so if you sense in your heart coldness toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, repudiate that. Try to cultivate the warmth that ought to characterize families. That's what we want. And, and whatever... The great thing about being a Christian, the great thing about being in a church where the Bible is actually believed, where people take the Bible seriously, is that if there are things that are keeping you from being able to feel brotherly affection toward your brothers and sisters in Christ, you can go and get those things resolved. Now, this is never going to be the Garden of Eden. So you're maybe never going to be totally satisfied with people, but we can try. And we can, we can pursue a greater degree of warmth with one another. Love one another with brotherly affection. This is, this is genuine love. Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be genuine. It needs to be affectionate. 
What does that look like? Verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. There's a, there's a competitive note there, isn't there? We're not competing to show one another up to make ourselves look better over against the other people. We're competing to show honor to one another. We're trying to take the lead in honoring one another, taking the lead in encouraging one another, in saying words that are building up, in saying things that are going to, to um, communicate to other people that you saw someone serving. It's, it's a great thing to show honor, to to recognize the grace of God at work in someone's life. And I would encourage you to look around. Look around and notice all the good that's happening. Look around and take stock of all the ways that people are serving. There are so many servants in this church. There's so much service that is happening all the time. And, And we should all be recognizing it and thanking one another. Take the lead in showing honor. Take the lead in... You're in a group of people, you noticed a good thing that someone did. Isn't it such a blessing for all of us to receive from Kathy the, the list of prayer requests after the Wednesday night prayer service? Isn't it such a blessing that Chris Davis serves us so well in so many ways, driving the van, cleaning the church, doing all the stuff that he does around here? Isn't it such a blessing? I could go on and on about Anna D'Amico forever. Isn't it such a blessing to have all these servants. We could show honor all day long. Take the lead. Look for opportunities to do it. And then look at verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. That's the way this is rendered. And again, notice how all these are, they they sound like they're all um, imperatives. They sound like they're all commands. Actually, a lot of these are, are statements that are, fleshing out the overarching command, let love be genuine, love, love one another without hypocrisy, and their participles, hating the evil, cleaving to the good, uh, loving one another dearly, outdoing one another and showing honor, uh, not being those who are la- lazy, but being eager. That's what we're looking at right here. As I was thinking about this, I couldn't help but think of Alexander Hamilton, if you know the Hamilton musical. Um, uh, I, I don't know if I'll need to refer the, to this. Um, this is, these are the lyrics of the Hamilton musical. It's fabulous. If you want to, you can get the clean version and it's good. Um, uh, Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr sings of him, even though we started at the very same time, Alexander Hamilton began to climb. How to account for his rise to the top? Man, the man is non-stop. And it just talks about how Alexander Hamilton, they, they sing, how do you write like you're running out of time? How do, write day and night. The guy, the guy wrote all the time. At one point in the, in the musical, they talk about the, the composition of the Federalist Papers, and, and the plan was to write a total of 25 essays. The work divided evenly among uh, Hamilton and Madison and Jay. In the end, They wrote 85 essays in six months, and John Jay got sick after writing five. James Madison wrote 29. Hamilton wrote the other 51. The guy was not lazy. The guy was not slothful in zeal. He was after it. And in his case, it was all for personal glory, and it was for this nation. And we have something so much bigger to live for. We have something so much better to be zealous about. 
in eagerness, not those who are lazy. That's who we ought to be. We, there is no excuse for a lazy Christian. Many of you are, are here and you're training for ministry. And I don't know if you realize this, but here's what lay people think about you. Think about us. Those guys work one day a week. What a gig. They work one day a week. That's what they think. I would urge you to be the kind of worker that nobody ever thinks that about. You want to be the kind of minister that people know he's not lacking in zeal. I could never accuse him of working one day a week. And, and right here it is in the Bible. It's commanding us, do not be slothful in zeal. We should none of us be slothful. If, if there's sloth, that's something that needs to be put to death. Young men in our culture, so many of them, losers, losers. And that's frank. That's what they are. If you're sitting around playing video games with all your time and looking at porn, you're a loser. And you need to stop it. You need to get to work. You need to be not slothful. You need to be zealous. You need to do something productive. You're made to lead. You're made to protect. You're made to produce. Do it. Do it. This is what genuine love does. Genuine love doesn't cultivate ways so that you can harbor your la laziness. Look at the next statement. Be fervent in spirit. I think there ought to be a capital S here. And, and another way to render this would be in the spirit, boiling. Boiling in the spirit. That's the, that's the image. The, the Holy Spirit, this is somebody who's believing in Jesus. This is somebody that's going hard after God, that's... that's cultivated a knowledge of the scriptures, and, and they're just boiling with the Holy Spirit, ready to go to work. Not slothful, but zealous. Not fake, but genuine. Seeking to outdo others in showing honor. Fervent in spirit. As I, as I thought about this, it, it's interesting. In, there's there's a, a statement about Apollos in Acts 18, verse 25. It says of him, Acts 18, 24 and 25, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, same language that we have in Romans 12, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. And if you know the passage, you know that, that some, some learned Christians pull him aside and they bring him up to speed on the gospel. So being fervent in spirit doesn't mean being unteachable. Being fervent in spirit doesn't mean not being competent in the scriptures. We read about Apollos that, that these things were true of him. And he ministered powerfully and effectively. And then look at the next statement there in verse 11. Serve the Lord. Again, it's a participle. Serving the Lord. This is what Paul set out to do. Romans Chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says of himself, God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son. Paul, for him, genuine love looks like serving God. Serving the Lord. Verse 13, he continues, and the ESV renders this, contribute to the needs of the saints. It's actually, the, the, word, the word they render uh, contribute is a participial form of, of the word koinonia. You know that word koinonia? It means fellowship or something like that. It means uh, uh, sharing or something like that. Sharing in the needs of the saints. So 
often that word koinonia is held up as this sort of, this is what we're after when we're trying to pursue Christian community. Well, Christian community means we're going to share with one another. We're going we're to enter into one another's needs. I don't think this is limited to financial needs, but I think it does include financial needs. Sharing in the needs of the saints. And then lastly, there in verse 13, it says, seek to show hospitality. Um, literally, the text says, pursuing hospitality. And the word translated um, seek to do, um, again, it's a participle. So um, pursuing hospitality or seeking to show hospitality. This is a way that you pursue genuine love. The word that's translated there, seek to show, is the same word that's rendered persecute in verse 14. So you want to persecute hospitality. You want to pursue hospitality in the sense that it's difficult, it takes effort, but you're going after it. You're going after it as an expression of unhypocritical, unpretentious love. Often this hospitality in, the, in, in, in Paul's day was, was largely about Christian missionaries. Because as Christians traveled from place to place, there wasn't a Days Inn or, you know, a Hilton Garden Inn or something like that where they're going to they're gonna stay. Um, and, and there are several places in the New Testament that address this, where John in 1st and 2nd and 3rd John gives instructions to people about how to welcome those who are doing authentic ministry and not welcome those who are pers- uh, propagating some other form of, of teaching. Paul himself is urging the church in Rome to to prosecute hospitality because he's going to need their help when he gets there. So the the kind of hospitality that's in in view here is gospel advancing hospitality. And it's such a joy to see that happening among us, isn't it? I can think of multiple families, the tenants, the heirs, the D'Amico's, others in our midst who actively use their home to pursue hospitality. The gullies, they're, they're prosecuting the gospel. They're, they're advancing the gospel by opening their home and being hospitable so that people who, who are pursuing ministry in various ways can, can have a place to stay and, and go after the ministry. It's a great thing. So all these statements in Romans 12, 9 through 13, are telling us what it looks like to pursue genuine love, unhypocritical love. In verses 14 through 16, Paul takes up the topic of how to respond to persecution. He says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. This, this command it, it, it uh, resonates with the things that we read from Matthew 5, from the teaching of Jesus. And it's uniquely Christian, isn't it? It's a, it's a remarkably, it's a supernatural work of God in someone's heart that when they are persecuted for the gospel, their response is, like Paul in Philippians 1, his response is, what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. So that as a result of my imprisonment, people are much more confident in God and they're speaking the word without fear. And, and so it's not, a, it's not a seeking of persecution. It's not a, acting like persecution is a happy thing. It's, it's awful. It's terrible. But it is a recognition. God is going to use this. 
And I'm seeking for those who are persecuting me to actually come to know God through this. I think that's the attitude that Paul is trying to commend here. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. When he says in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice. I think he's thinking of things like, you remember that story in Acts 12? When um, they, they first, um, they put James, I think it is, to death. Yeah, they kill James and then they arrest Peter. And then the Lord springs Peter free. And the church rejoices over Peter's deliverance. I think that's the kind of rejoicing that he has here. If you escape the persecution, if you're delivered from, praise God. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And if you suffer the persecution, or if people you love weep with those who weep. So I'm not saying this doesn't apply to broader categories. You know, somebody gets a great... Um, great new job, rejoice with those. Sure, absolutely. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Someone suffers a loss that's unrelated to persecution, absolutely. Weep with those who weep. But I think in particular, in the context, that's what Paul is talking about in response to persecution. So I know sometimes Christians are, we're, we're critical of ourselves and of others to a fault. And sometimes Christians can look at people persecuted and, and think, well, if they weren't such a, such a jerk about it. Or, well, if I had been in that situation, maybe I could have assuaged the concerns of the rulers and they wouldn't have persecuted me. I think Paul is addressing that in what he says um, in, in uh, sorry, I lost my place. In the, in, the next in the next statement, in verse 16, when he says, live in harmony with one another, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. I think it's like he's saying to Christians, don't think that you can cozy up to the rulers. Um, don't be haughty. Don't think that you're going to be able to get in with the right people and, and sort of stay away from those people who have incurred the wrath of the rulers. Don't be wise in your own sight. You need to rejoice with those who rejoice. You need to weep with those who weep. If there are Christians that are being persecuted, weep with them. Don't criticize them. Don't coach them. I mean, maybe there's a time and a place for evaluation and constructive com conversation, but weep with them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Um, we, we ought to think about one another. These are my people. These are my people. I know some Christians who don't like other Christians. I don't think that's a good attitude. I don't think that reflects genuine love. Cri we ought to be the people who say, like Psalm 119, verse 63, I love that verse, I am a companion of all who fear your name. Everyone that fears you, God, they're on my team. And I don't know if you play ball, but, but when I played ball, team sports in particular, what you recognize playing team sports is I need my teammates. If, if, if I'm going to win, if we're going to win, they've got to be at their best. And so, you know, I, I don't want to dog my teammates for their mistakes. I want to build my teammates up. I don't want them thinking after they've made the ninth error in a row, well, I'm always going to make an error. No, I want them thinking I'm going to make the next play. And so I'm going to try to encourage my teammates. This, they're on my team. We're trying to win together. That's, that's how we need to be as Christians. You're on my team. You're my people. I'm with you. And, and we can overcome this time. This is going to get better. Do not be haughty, 
associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. These are responses to, to persecution. Don't abandon the persecuted and favor those with influence. Associate with the lowly. And then finally, in verses 17 through 21, leaving room for wrath. Verse 17, repay no one evil for evil. I think in particular, Paul has in view here the persecutors. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. You know, it's interesting in this, in this account of the martyrdom of Polycarp, there are ways that even the author of the narrative is trying to present the Christians honorably. And he's, and he's pointing out ways that the persecutors recognize as they go to get this 86-year-old man, it's, it's like they, they realize this guy's not harming anybody. Why? Why are, this guy's not a criminal. He's not a mur- Why are we putting this guy to death? He's a frail 86-year-old man who's beloved by all these members of his community. Why are we, why are we executing this man? This is, the, this is exactly what Paul is calling for here. And, and it's what will happen if you don't repay evil for evil. But if Polycarp were to respond with vindictiveness or with anger or with malice, none of that would have worked. When those guys showed up to arrest Polycarp, what he did was he obeyed Romans 12. Look at, look at what it says here. It says, um, um, verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. These guys come to arrest Polycarp. He prepared a meal for them. And he said, I want, I want you guys to enjoy God's goodness with me. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. Verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I think it's these kinds of statements that have, have uh, resulted in, in Christians developing things like the just war theory, which says um, in, in, in the prosecution of the war, you, you, can't, you, you shouldn't pursue a war of conquest, but you can defend yourself. And you should only use the amount of force necessary, and you should take care not to do collateral damage and kill non-combatants. And I think there's something like that, perhaps, at work, in, even in Christian conduct with, with reference to persecutors. And, and as I was thinking about this, what came to mind was Paul in Philippi. If you remember this account in Acts 16, maybe you've wondered why he does this. But they arrest him, and they, and they, and they beat him without having established any charges against him. And then they just kind of want to sweep it under the rug and, and dismiss him and send him off. And he says, oh, no, 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 no. You have beaten us without trial, and we're Romans, and we did nothing wrong. It's like he's saying, you're going to give a public apology and vindication of us. Why is Paul doing that? He's doing that to stand up for the gospel. He's doing that to try to, to, try to maintain the legal rights of the gospel in the Greco-Roman society. He's trying to make it so that there's not this precedent set where you can just, you know, prosecute whatever evil against these Christians, and they're not going to stand up against it. There's kind of a a response to the government that's an appropriate legal response to maintain the rights of the Christians there in Acts 16. If possible, verse 18, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If they attack you, don't deny the name of Christ. Don't return evil for evil. But there is an appropriate amount of standing up for your rights. I think we see that in Paul's own example. 
Verse 18, beloved, never, I'm sorry, verse 19, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Uh, this, I think this leave it to the wrath of God is really what empowers and enables blessing those who persecute you and repaying no one evil for evil. Because if you contemplate the wrath of God, if you contemplate what the persecutors face, if you contemplate what the fake Christians who are maybe acting, I mean, Paul talks about these kinds of people in Philippians 1, you know, he says, uh, some of these people, they're just preaching Christ out of envy and rivalry, trying to stir up trouble for me in my imprisonment. They're trying to make my life harder. That's why they're talking about Jesus. And, he, and, and I think that one of the reasons that Paul is able to bless those who persecute him and commit himself not to returning for evil for evil is because he knows how awful hell is going to be. He knows how unending and infinite and everlasting will be the active, angry presence of God to visit devastation and everlasting destruction on his enemies. And if we think about that wrath of God, our, our reaction will be, I don't want my worst enemy to suffer that. I don't want the, the worst persecutor of the church to go through that. I want them to know Jesus. I want them to experience the power of the gospel. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we don't want you to be left to the wrath of God. We want you to escape the wrath of God. And there is a, a gracious way of escape. It's the way that God has made through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. He's made it so that you can turn from sin and trust in Christ and live for Jesus and be delivered from the wrath of God. There's a song that the Sovereign Grace recorded, it contains the words, What wisdom once devised a plan where all our sin and pride was placed upon the perfect man who suffered, bled, and died. The wisdom of a sovereign God whose goodness will be shown when those who crucified your son rejoice around your throne. That's what's going to happen. We, we put Christ on the cross through our sin. Sinners put Christ on the cross, and redeemed sinners, saved sinners, are going to rejoice around the throne of God. This is what we want for all people. This is what motivates blessing those who persecute us. This is what motivates repay no one evil for evil. It motivates, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. It motivates never avenge yourselves. Verse 20, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. There's a lot of discussion about what that refers to. Um, I, think it, I think the best explanation is contextual, and I think it's explained by, by, by verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So I think that heap burning coals on his head means make him feel bad about persecuting you because you respond in such a Christ-like way. You respond like Jesus on the cross, Father, Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You respond like Stephen as he's being martyred by the persecutors, stoned to death. And he says, Lord, don't hold this against them. And, and, and this kind of response heaps burning. It overcomes evil with good. 
David Peterson summarizes what we're called to here. It's, re it's really just a list of applications for us, isn't it? David Peterson write, writes this. It's just kind of a paraphrase of this passage. He says, genuine love is more than a benevolent disposition toward others. It involves rejecting what is evil and clinging what, to what is good. Love for fellow believers should express familial affection, recognizing the special relationship into which God has brought us. Practically, this means taking the lead in honoring one another, being diligent in fulfilling responsibilities, sharing with others in their needs, and pursuing hospitality. Spiritual fervor, boiling in the spirit, issuing in such service to the Lord, is maintained by rejoicing in hope. I skipped that word. There's a, there's a, a command in there where Paul urges people to rejoice in hope. And I passed right over that and didn't comment on it. Rejoicing in hope means you know what God has promised. You believe that he's going to do it. And it's like Romans 5, you boast in the hope of the glory of God. Being patient in affliction. I think I skipped that too. Enduring affliction patiently. I don't know how my eyes passed over those, those verses. Being persistent in prayer. These are all in one verse that I skipped. Maybe verse 12. Did I skip that or did I comment on it? Did I skip right over it? Yeah, sorry. Verse 12, all those statements are true and we should obey them all. <laughs> Hallelujah. Sorry, Paul. Um, blessing rather than cursing is the keynote when dealing with opponents. Paul knew the pressure we feel to respond with anger and vengeance. Alluding to the teaching of Jesus and quoting Scripture, he insists that believers should leave vengeance to God and look for ways of showing love to enemies. Positive, outgoing goodness is advocated, not merely passive resistance. Within this context, Paul indicates that relationships with believers and non-believers alike require sympathy, humility, and the pursuit of peace. Let's pray together. Father, only the Spirit of God can cause us to feel genuine love for one another. And Lord, only your Spirit can enable us to be fervent in the way that we're called to here. Lord, we don't want any other kind of fervency than Spirit-empowered fervency fervency that's grounded in faith in Jesus and an urgency that arises from the knowledge that people are going to perish apart from him. Lord, that's the kind of urgency and fervent love that we want to feel. So, Father, we pray that you would, by your Spirit, renew us and make us people who love without pretense, without hypocrisy. Make us people who are able to bless those who persecute us and able to overcome evil with good because of the way that Jesus lived, because of the way that he overcame the evil of our hearts and our rebellion and our sin with his goodness and love. Lord, make us those who overcome. And we pray that you would cause the church this church, and really all the churches, to be characterized by this Christ-likeness. We love you. We thank you for Jesus. 
We pray all this in his name. Amen. Oh, can I have this for one? So as we stand